podcast one production. Welcome to Agriminders. G'day, I'm Chris Russell. As we consider the key factors for successful agricultural production in Australia, in this episode, we will continue to look at what is perhaps a hidden obstacle for our future food security. That is, both the availability and the mining of energy, mainly coal and gas from beneath our farmlands. We've already heard from leading global authority on renewable energy, Dr Sven Teske, and the grazier that's leading the charge against coal seam gas mining in central New South Wales, David Chadwick, who left us in no doubt that in his view, the risks to our underground water supplies are way too high from drilling through aquifers to extract the gas. But is he right? Or can we, indeed must we, have our cake and heat it too? Should we rely entirely on data and science? Or does the perception of risk, influenced by shock and awe publicity, dominate the science as we make these critical, irreversible decisions? So to help us cut through this dilemma... I went to a person who not only has the balance of intellect and farming experience to do it, but has also been right at the top of political decision-making in Australia. The Honourable John Anderson AO is a former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia and leader of the National Party, formerly known as the Country Party, from 1999 to 2005. He also served as Minister for Primary Industries and Energy and Minister for Transport and Regional Development. He currently farms, however, on his family property west of Gunnedah. Welcome to AgriMinders, John. Good to be with you. John, uh, before I start talking about, um, about this tension, one of the things I'd like to explore with you, and I've noticed when I've been putting these together, is, is that the debate on this, like climate change really, has become so emotional. You know, whereas in the past with with mining, we've celebrated the prosperity that's come from it. We, in many cases, um, you know, we've we've seen whole regional areas benefit from particular mining solutions. But in this case, despite you know solutions that have been put up by governments and by government reviews, there's this ongoing very emotional antagonism and and almost aggression towards anyone who even considers the alternate arguments. Is, is this come from a kind of mistrust of mining companies? Is it political pressure from uh, minority parties? Um, or is it even a lack of perceived benefit to local farmers and communities? Where, where, why is it so emotional and why are people not even listening to the alternatives? I don't know that you can say this only applies to the interfacing between agriculture and the resources sector. I think you've really got a extraordinary set of circumstances right across the Western world where almost every issue now involves enormous emotional heat, often deep passion, and I have to say it, if you look at social media, there's no other way to put it, incredible levels of invective and even hatred being thrown around on almost any topic you care to think of. Uh, We actually feel more than we think through issues, and it is actually threatening frankly, the workability of Western society. So I am reluctant to isolate this out to one area, but I'll tell you what I will say, and that's this. There are a lot of people really worried 
about the slangy matches, saying what's happened to the ability to sit down, talk reasonably, try and understand what we can agree on and what we can't agree on because we'll never get good policy out of these slanging matches. So, John, coming down to this specific issue, how do you think we do balance the critical nature of food and fibre production against the kind of insatiable demand for energy that we have that requires us to to exploit these resources? Or, in fact, are those resources irrelevant, as some of the, as some of the antagonists um, theorise? Well, again, you've got to live in the real world. And agriculture itself is very interesting. I, I am still involved with the Crawford Fund for Agricultural Research. And we run seminars in Canberra every year and uh, on food production, on food issues, agricultural issues, uh, the interfacing with communities and what have you. But one of the things, the takeout that I've come to understand very clearly is that you cannot feed and clothe people and will not be able to in the foreseeable future without large supplies of fossil fuel energy reliably supplied at affordable rates. And in fact, and, and I'd be interested if anyone wants to really seriously challenge this, but the line I would take through the scientists' comments and observations and the papers that I've read over the last 30 years of being involved in policy and agriculture, probably without fossil fuels, the globe could support only a billion people or so, but there are 7 billion of us. Uh, and the reality is that for a very long time yet to come, fossil fuels will play a major part uh, in us simply being able to feed people, let alone do the other things we want to do, drive motor cars and live in houses that are, you know, heated and, um, you know, uh, fly to other places for holidays. I, one of the things that really does intrigue me is a number of people who are very big on climate issues who spend their time jetting around the world, often in business class, which is, as your listeners will know, our listeners will know, uh, extraordinarily intensive in terms of energy usage. So we need to start at a point that says actually feeding people is a value too and we're not going to be able to do it without it for a lot of fossil fuel. And it isn't just, by the way, transport. It's not just tractors. It's not just fertilisers. It's chemicals. It's plastics. It's the whole deal. John, you mentioned that a billion people is probably the maximum population for the planet without the use of fossil fuels, therefore just depending on wind, solar and other uh, recyclable forms of power. Where does that information come from and why isn't that freely promulgated? Because, you know, that seems to be pretty much an answer right there. Well, it, it comes from, that would be the, the line that I would take through what I've heard from agricultural scientists over the last 30 odd years, that global population wouldn't have grown beyond, would not have been able or would not have been sustainable beyond about a billion people without the technologies uh, that have been made possible by fossil fuels and which are supported and driven by fossil fuels. Now, plainly over time, as alternatives become reliable, and that's a big issue. You can't have power turning on and off and affordable. That may alter and that would be a good thing and it needs to be pursued. But as you've seen in Australia, if you don't pursue it with careful planning, if you get too far ahead of the ball, the whole thing turns to custard and it doesn't work. And we are a long way short of being able to do everything from power machinery, transport networks, um, cooked foods, whether they're pre-processed or whether they're cooked at home, 
produce the chemicals and the fertilisers and so forth uh, that, are, that, that, that fossil fuels are the cheapest and easiest feedstocks to access at the moment, we're a long way short of being able to feed the global population that we now see, let alone the one that's coming, with renewables alone. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to be challenged on that, but that would be my clear takeout. I'm not a scientist. I don't pretend to be one, but I don't think I'm too bad at assessing realistic science and people who have put an argument together properly and those who are not so much thinking as feeling. And I know I've emphasised that. We have to think. We can't afford to feel. You don't see a farmer who gets ahead by feeling, well, today might be a good day to sow the crop. He does it on the basis of sound knowledge and experience and research. So in her September 2015 report, um, Professor Mary O'Kane, who is a very eminent scientist, engineer, and in fact the chief scientist and engineer for New South Wales at that time, submitted her review to the government and she identified a number of areas that she felt needed to be addressed to make sure that we do address the concerns uh, of the antagonist to the proposal, particularly in the Pilliga, but generally about coal seam gas. Um, she said there should for example be her first recommendation was a fair system for managing land access and compensation uh, are we in fact managing that are we actually we've got this strange situation in Australia where one group of people the farmers own the topsoil and other people can own everything below the soil um, is is the system we have for allowing people to both exploit what they own satisfactory or does that need significant change here I think it's been a question of evolution. I suspect in the early days in Queensland, the industry saw some pretty heavy-handed approaches and farmers understandably resented that. I think there's been a lot of movement since. And I was only reflecting the other day that the numbers are quite staggering. Now that it has changed, then there's a degree of equity. I don't want to sit here and say it's perfect, but there'd be a lot of Queenslanders in this terrible, terrible drought looking at the raw numbers. The income flows they're getting now would be quite substantial and taking a lot of pressure off, I would have thought. But it's an interesting, it's a very important question. The answer is, oh, and you mentioned the Pilliger, of course, well, it's not actually on farmland. Um, so the issue didn't really arise so much there. It might in the future if, if you know, in a, in a, if it ever becomes a reality and expands, it may involve farmlands, but essentially it's on public low-value conservation land uh, and anybody who knows that country knows that whilst you don't denigrate all, you know, even even modest country, it's not exactly prime agricultural land, far from it. It's uh, conservation land. Um, so, but I think the answer is in, in, in broad terms, uh, we haven't done as well uh, as a society at working through what is fair and just and reasonable. Uh, the American title systems often do give people ownership of the minerals below the land. It's been rare in Australia. Uh, mostly we would say our title systems give us good freedom and the economic security we need to farm. I've thought about this quite a bit myself. I, I, I suppose I'd look at it this way. I've been fortunate enough to uh, inherit land and to buy land, to do both. Um, but, uh, you know, back in the 60s and early 70s, uh, sitting in a classroom beside kids who weren't going to inherit farms, the accepted wisdom from on their behalf would have been, well, we do have public ownership of the minerals and they ought to be used for our broader benefit. So there's that other perspective as well. You'd be asking the community to give up things 
that the community feels they understand. And one of the tensions, as somebody who was a member for a rural seat for a long time, that I do pick up uh, is that in many country towns, you find the sense of, well, actually, we'd like our kids who aren't going to inherit farmers to have the opportunities to work in the resources sector if that opportunity's there. Let's think of our kids and their jobs as well. John, you mentioned the Pilliga, and as you said, this is not about land ownership. This is about taking gas from under land, which isn't necessarily being farmed and certainly isn't prime land. But we spoke to David Chadwick uh, in this uh, series, and his big concern is about the damage potentially to the water that actually flows underground to a lot of major areas through the Great Artesian Basin and various aquifers. And his concerns, they're well known, are to, to do with transferring water from one level to another, with the fracking chemicals that they use to open up those fractures uh, between the different aquifers. And I, I think that um, his he was really worried about... Just just not his area, but the whole agricultural system being damaged by the sheer scale of the amount of water that be affected from that Pilliga project. Now, Mary O'Kane in her report has made various recommendations about this, most of them talking about uh, monitoring and advanced monitoring and and an expert committee that will watch this and requiring uh, or trained personnel and the latest standards and so on. But she does say in her report that there is risk and that while the risk will have to be mitigated, uh, there is a risk that something will go wrong, that errors will be made and there may be damage. Is the risk to our water systems uh, worth it for the amount of energy that we'll get out of, uh, out of that uh, particular project, in your view? Well, they're judgments that uh, people will have to make, but we need to agree on a few realities first. Any drilling into aquifers will have an impact. Uh, yeah, the Great Artesian Basin was opened up for open-flowing bores from the 1880s onwards, two-thirds of the system depressurised, two-thirds of it. That was a massive environmental issue. And I oversaw and argued for adequate funding uh, for many years as Minister for Money for the Capping and Piping Program to restore the system. Hasn't been completed, but many of the most sensitive free-flowing bores that needed to be uh, recapped, repiped, recapped, or capped properly, restored, uh, and then, uh, you know, tapped and then the water piped instead of allowed to flow openly in flowing drains. They've been fixed. And uh, I'll be interested uh, if there's any update, but the last time I checked, the, the entire system was starting to recover. It's repressurising. It is coming back. So, of course, you can do damage. And, and, and the New South Wales scientists made the, made the entirely, I think, uh, you know, accurate statement that quite a few activities in the past have created problems over allocation um, the mixing, the deliberate admixing of water from different parts of the aquifer in times gone by. Now, we don't want to repeat those things, but i just make a couple of other points. One is that um, uh, if you frack with uh, the gas in the pillager, you don't get the gas. That's a technical issue. You can't frack. So fracking, which has got this terrible name, um, it's worth noting that President Obama uh, actually uh, went on, <laughs> publicly said one day, thank God for fracking, it's helping save the American environment. They've been doing it with uh, uh, President Obama himself from uh, the other side of politics to me, says it's been a great blessing for the environment in America because it's reduced their dependence on coal and, of course, gas is far, far cleaner. 
So he sees it as an environmental benefit. The Northern Territory government came to power saying we will ban fracking until we've had a review. They've had a review and found that fracking, there's no evidence of serious damage anywhere, as far as I know. I mean, if, if, if I'm wrong, I dare say listeners will correct us, but that's a Labor government from the left opposed to fracking now saying we've had our report, we're satisfied, that is not dangerous. The evidence doesn't tell you there's a problem. So the issue becomes one of do we need energy? Well, yes, we do. I find it amazing, for example, as a farmer, that I have to buy my gas-produced fertiliser, urea, from offshore, uh, in some cases from our competitors. And it's interesting talking to, as I did a few years ago, to a fertiliser manufacturer in this country who said, we're just giving up on Australia. We're going to where we can get good, reliable sources of gas. We're going to America. It's fracked gas, uh, but that's where we're going, and then we'll send it back to Australia. So, again, I think my plea would be, let's talk this through calmly. Let's get the facts on the table. Now, there's another aspect of that. You mentioned the chief scientist, and, of course, you've got a Commonwealth chief scientist as well. I do think there's a question here. Um, I do hear people saying, well, that's your science to people from the government or to federal members or whatever. Uh, We have our science. Um, I think there's two challenges that arise out of that. Are we as a community going to accept the integrity of our chief scientists and the work that they do or not? Because if we're not we're all in trouble. We really are. Science is unbelievably important to agriculture. Are we going to respond to evidence-based arguments or are we not? And the second issue is um, people who, and they still tell me this sometimes, oh, we've got science that shows something else. Well, can we see it? Yeah, but science, I'm a scientist as well, John, and science is a fallible art. It's not the art of a unique wisdom, and I think her report absolutely reflects that. Her whole review is all talking about not only the likely science, but also what we do if that that doesn't happen or if that's wrong. Um, What's annoyed me about really a lot of the debates that are happening today is that science is about hypothesis, it's about problem, hypothesis, uh, trial work, proof and then repeatability and then on the basis of that you make a best call on what you think the science is about a particular situation. I think she's done that accurately. The problem I get or the impression I get is that a lot of the antagonists wouldn't care if they actually woke up in the morning and actually saw the blue sky, they would still say it's not blue. You know, I I just wonder whether, in fact, this has gone beyond the credibility of the science and the scientist and it's just moved into a a kind of political agenda, really. And a lot of it also... Go on. But I I think that's an incredibly important point. You know, I chair the Crawford Fund for Agricultural Research. I know that research has been behind, for example, farming productivity improvements in Australia, which have outstripped every other sector in the Australian economy since 1945. It's a remarkable performance. It's been on the back of research. It's been on the back of science. We've always taken science seriously. If we're going to get into the area of saying, well, we won't carefully consider the best science that's put before us, we're going to face the problem. I've just been in Europe, the problem that they've got in Europe. There's an argument over the science on Roundup. Now, again, Judgments will, I suppose, have to be formed, but they need to be done with the best available science, the best available evidence, and in careful weighing of all of the issues. Because for us to lose Roundup in this point in Australian agriculture, and that's the way the drift is going, 
I think would be a horrendous problem. And yet I'm not convinced, I'm far from convinced that the science says we should give it up. So there's no doubt that there is uh, an insatiable desire for power in the world and for energy, as you've said, uh, be it for even battery charging uh, cars who drive Mm. to Melbourne and use more greenhouse gas production producing the electricity to drive them there than a petrol-powered vehicle will if you just drove with petrol. But leaving that to one side, in the Fed Income Department, do we really have any alternative to bulk power on the horizon other than coal, gas or nuclear? I spoke to Dr Sventeski earlier in this episode. He believes that the modern world now is that you can build a, a, um, a... set up to produce power from recyclables as cheaply as you can build a coal-fired station and that really coal-fired stations are a thing of the past. We can now do the whole lot from these recyclables. Is that, I, I, for my level, and I'm not an expert, I, I wonder whether that's actually yet the case. Well, look, people are always careful with their money. They don't make unwise decisions. There are several hundred high-energy, low-emission coal-fired power stations being built around the world today, hundreds of them in China, but you've got them going up in places like Japan, which is a very, very sophisticated economy with very smart people with a brilliant technology. I mean, how many of us drive Japanese motor cars? We know how good their technology is. They're building them. They wouldn't be building them if there were cheaper, more attractive options. I simply put it to you, they wouldn't be building them if there were. So do you think that in Australia the solution uh, for our energy is going to be more likely met from continuing to exploit our underground resources or do you think that we will continue on this drive towards uh, what the South Australians have done? I've just been in South Australia. It's, you know, I mean, that, that they basically live off Victorian coal-fired power down there. I, they've just got so much, so long to go. I just can't see that we're not going to still need to keep digging these up from somewhere. I am fully supportive of the development of new technologies and renewables. I'm not a climate change denier, although I would state immediately after that, I think it would be an absurdity for Australia to simply de-industrialise, push our industries offshore, guarantee that they're taken up elsewhere using dirtier energy than we do for a worse environmental outcome globally. Uh, There's a thing called logic, thinking these things through, and I haven't heard a rebuttal of that reality which is now confronting us because the decisions we are making now, and South Australia has led the way, they've gone from the cheapest, most reliable electricity in the OECD to almost the most unreliable, if not the most, and the most expensive. I checked that yesterday. The most expensive. What will that lead to? Not just energy poverty for poorer people, won't affect the middle class, won't affect the people so much, it won't affect people who are on government paychecks and get regular updates, It will affect the poor, it will affect the vulnerable, and it already is, as we know. And furthermore, there's a great dishonesty at the heart of a lot of people who are involved in this social engineering. They actually want to de-industrialise the country. They want to do it. They don't believe in industrialisation. Well, I'm sorry, I think we do want an industrial sector. The biggest employment, as I understand it, in the industrial sector in Australia is the food processing sector. 
That's about agriculture. It's been going really well, although the drought now is a problem. The other great problem, as expert after expert after expert will tell you, is that our competitiveness is being affected now by energy availability, including gas, and the cost and reliability of electricity. One major international operator I heard speak at a function very recently said, we operate in 70 countries. Australian farmers and value adders are the world's best, but you now have the world's most expensive electricity and it's going to blow you out of the water. Well, we have to make choices, and that comes back to the issue of science. As you say, science can't give absolutes, um, but it's our best guide. It's underpinned our way of life, the improvements in our way of life, the improvements in farm productivity, the improvements in livability on farms. We're not about to walk away from science. We won't walk away from science when we have something go wrong medically. We will expect the best science to give us the best medical solutions. Well, now, that will from time to time involve value judgments, but we need to be logical. Do we really want to de-industrialise Australia? I don't. I think that would be unwise. I don't think it's necessary. And I genuinely believe it would be environmentally uh, disadvantageous because if we stop value-adding our foodstuffs, for example, does that mean the world will stop demanding that product? No, it just means somebody else will do it. Do we have the technology and the relatively clean fuels? Relatively. I don't say they're clean enough, but they're cleaner to do it better than most other places in the world? Yes, we do. Why would we give away our jobs? Why would we sacrifice our prosperity? And in the, in the name of improving the environment, when, when you follow the logic through, we may in fact be producing a worse environmental outcome anyway. John, there is a tension between trying to change the climate and adapting to inevitable change. Now, my view is that resource-wise, we haven't put enough emphasis on the adaptation and we've put way too much resource on, excusing mixing my metaphors here, but rather quixotically jousting at windmills trying to change the climate virtually single-handedly when you look at, as you've already referred to, what's happening overseas, uh, and not given enough resource to helping farmers adapt to changes in weather patterns that we're seeing. Now, I just wonder why that is. If we put the money that we've spent on trying to stop burping cows into, for example, developing the burdekin or helping Sunraysia farmers um, get more water from maybe from the Clarence system, uh, there are so many projects that we could be putting money in which will allow us to adapt to what I see as probably inevitable despite our best efforts. Um, Why do you think we're doing that? Well, I think it's a... It's a very good question. I think it's partly because, and you hear this quite often, climate change has become a religion. And if you don't subscribe to every aspect of it as declared by the elites, some of whom don't know much about that. An interesting little story. I spoke the other day to one of the half dozen smartest people I know in the country. He's a patent lawyer, a very, very clever man. He's listened to this debate for a long time over climate change. He said, you are deeply experienced in evaluating evidence, I said to this man, where do you come out in climate change? He looked at me and he said, I don't know. Well, no wonder the rest of us are confused. Now, I believe in the precautionary principles. I I actually think it would be a good thing to reduce our reliance on fossil fuel. I think it would be a very good thing to develop the technologies to reduce our dependence upon fossil fuels for feeding people. I really genuinely believe that. Uh, But I think the reality is that we also do need to adapt. Now, we know that Australian farmers are quite brilliant at it 
And I see the way, for example, just driving around without looking at the data, at tough as it is, and, you know, golly, it's not as if I don't entirely sympathise and feel very, very deeply for my fellow farmers doing it so difficult, so tough in uh, the circumstances we're having in 1918, uh, 2018. Uh, but the reality is that they have shown and continue to show their ability to adapt. We will need to continue to adapt no matter what happens, and we will depend on science and research. So part of what I'm saying here, if I'm making a plea at all, it's let's not abandon the age of reason. The age of reason stands behind just about everything that is good in the West, everything that has now advanced people right around the world. The, the living uh, uh, expectations of people in the developing world have doubled over the recent decades, doubled. I mean, surely that's a good thing. What's led to it? Science and economic advancement. Should we stop it? Should we turn the clock back? Should we run the risk of not being able to feed ourselves? Should we run the risk of pricing people who have recently started to develop the capacity to pay for a proper diet for their children and so forth, of pricing them out of it again? I think we really do need to stop and ask some pretty big questions here about whether we're feeling our way along or whether we're thinking our way along. John, there's sort of two arguments here and there's two areas in this really. One is regards, um, you know, carbon emissions to do with all this whole recyclable energy debate uh, and that is that on one hand we're sitting here trying to be the exemplar of the world but in fact if we cut every bit of carbon emission out of Australia we would only make a 15th of a difference of a degree to, to the climate. So on its own all we can expect to be is an exemplar for others to follow. I mean is that reasonable? And then as far as things like technology are concerned, you know, we sit here and pontificate um, about uh, what other countries can and can't do, and yet we're happy to do it here in Australia. Um, you know, how, how does Australia, how should Australia see itself relating to the rest of the world with these sort of issues? Well, we can virtue signal and make ourselves feel good without any reasoning behind it. And we could shut down all industry in Australia. Indeed, that's probably the pathway we're on at the moment and sit there and say, aren't we clever? We're not contributing to greenhouse gases. It's quite possible. In fact, I'd say it's quite likely. The net result of that, though, would be that global emissions would go up, not down, because people would be doing the same things. They'd be filling the, the gaps left by us in countries where, frankly, they don't have the same standards and where, for example, their coal may be dirtier because we know that Australian coal, as coal goes, is quite clean burning. The other aspect of this that strikes me as sometimes incredibly irrational is that if fracking is such a terrible evil, why is it that we're happy to buy a fertiliser that's produced with fracked gas from other countries when in fact we could produce gas here in Australia to make our fertiliser that hasn't involved fracking? So again, it becomes a question of thinking these things through. Are we being logical? Is our position really virtuous? Does it really in, in the end make sense or does it just make me look like I'm a virtuous person? John, thank you very much for joining us on AgriMinders today. I think you've brought some some credibility and some, uh, some fair income comment uh, to this whole debate and we really appreciate your time. Well, good to be with you uh, and... Um, I do believe in reason. I do believe in science. I do believe in civilised conversation. We'll never find a way forward 
with good public policy unless we have properly constrained, respectful debates. There are clearly three entwined but disparate views on this dilemma. Dr Teske tells us that we don't need to mine the gas and coal in order to source energy for our food and fibre production or indeed anything else, and that we can rely on renewables alone. And further, this avoids the issue of conflict of land use. David Chadwick has expressed his concerns when it comes to underground water contamination or even water loss from coal seam gas mining. But John Anderson believes that emotion is obscuring science and data. And whilst he acknowledges there is always some risk, we probably should rely on the experts' review and that we can, in fact, have our cake and heat it too. And indeed, we need the coal and gas, for the moment at least, for baseload power. And in a country where the average age of farmers is 56 and rising, could we blame the farmers for selling their land to the miners at prices they wouldn't have dreamed of 10 years ago? Thanks to our agriminders, the information is in, but the jury is still out as far as I'm concerned. But one thing is for certain, we need this riddle to be solved if we're going to get on with the task of producing 70% more food in the next 50 years. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.